Good morning. Well, recently I read a sobering article that I found online. It's uh, written by a non-Christian, and he was commenting on the trend of celebrity pastors within American evangelicalism. He's writing in the wake of another all-too-familiar story where the moral failings of a prominent pastor disqualified him from ministry. It has damaging effects on the people within the church, the victims, and the witness to the world. And so here's what this author writes, who again is is a non-Christian. There's an irony in how whenever Christians seem to attach themselves to mainstream culture with all its vices in the hope of drawing people towards God, they seem to get drawn toward vi- they seem to get drawn towards vice. Making yourself a very public representative of God rather than a humble messenger is a dangerous business when you are like all of us a very flawed human being. When you add in all the sweet temptations of wealth and fame, that becomes especially true. These celebrity pastors often seem to represent what I call the with a twist of Christianity trend. There's mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, uh, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth sharing, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is, something, uh, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Those last few sentences are appalling. It's a tragedy that the church so often displays a tendency to conform to the culture rather than developing its own Christian counterculture. If you deem it unimportant for Christians to be set apart and distinct for the world, if you don't think it's a big deal that they maintain a faithful and biblical witness to the gospel, then I hope those words may be convinced you otherwise. And if not the words of of this one writer, I pray that the words of our biblical text this morning will do so as it echoes these very same ideas. And so as we'll see this morning in Matthew 5, 11 through 16, it's essential that Christ's people maintain a distinct testimony to the world. And yet what we'll also see is that this doesn't come without a cost. For while Jesus' disciples are invited into a life of true flourishing as witnesses to his new covenant and kingdom, they are also certain to face opposition. At the head of the Sermon on the Mount, we find this series of pithy and powerful statements which Jesus sets out as this vision for the kingdom. It's a vision for life in his new kingdom that he inaugurates. Uh, We've been calling these the Beatitudes as they've been referred to throughout church history. The last two sermons unpacked, Matthew 5, 1 through 10, which contained the first eight of these Beatitudes. And today we'll cover 11 through 16, where we find the final, the ninth Beatitude, and also an important exhortation that Jesus gives to his followers. Here's our truth statement for today. 
Jesus' disciples are invited into a life of true flourishing as witnesses to his new covenant and kingdom, even as they face persecution. If you haven't already, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 5.11, and I'm going to read through the text this morning before we dive in. Matthew 5.11. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So in verse, thir- uh, verse 11, rather, we find the final beatitude, one of the nine consecutive statements that begin with blessed. It's worth reiterating what Greg mentioned a couple weeks ago in regards to this word blessed in English, we really lack a word that adequately conveys all the nuance and range of this one single word in Greek. Almost every modern translation will use the word blessed, which is fine. It's a uh, helpful word in a lot of ways, but it's also worth bearing in mind a few other options, such as fortunate or happy or flourishing. There are pros and cons to each of these words, but an awareness of this spectrum will at least kind of broaden our scope for understanding what this word means and what Jesus is telling us here. Remember, with these statements, the the Beatitudes that we find here are descriptions, they're uh, commendations of the good life. As a wise and prophetic teacher, Jesus is offering us and inviting us as his hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in true and full flourishing, both now and in the age to come. These statements are his vision for what this true life of blessedness or flourishing looks like in God's kingdom. What this means is that these are not entrance requirements. These aren't boxes that we have to check and things that we have to do in order to gain a place in the kingdom. Instead, they paint a portrait of this kingdom and present a summary description of what a true disciple looks like. They then implicitly extend to us an appeal to be this kind of person so that we might taste the fullness of divine blessing and flourishing. What we find in the Sermon on the Mount is not a dilemma of grace versus works or doing these things so that you gain God's favor or not doing anything at all. Instead, this summons that Christ offers us is given within the context of grace, and it invites us into his story and reality. With those reminders in place, we can now move into the last of these statements. Verses 11 and 12 will act as a sort of hinge between these first eight Beatitudes and then this statement that we find in 13 and following of the disciples' identity and commission. 
Notice how in verse 11, it shifts from the third person, blessed are those, to the second. You are blessed, or blessed are you. This is in keeping then with the pattern in verse 13 and 14, which we'll see where there's a few statements, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and so it bridges this gap, linking the two sections together. The word blessed keeps us tied to the last eight Beatitudes, and with this final statement, we find a climactic and emphatic summary and point in this list that Jesus is making. When it comes to the actual content of what what he says in verse 11, it's rather shocking. It's an expansion upon the theme that he introduced verse earlier, which declared, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Both of these verses assume the certainty of persecution for all Christians. Jesus doesn't say, if you are persecuted. He says, when you are persecuted. He expects that his disciples will be insulted and reviled, physically harassed and persecuted, falsely spoken of, and slandered. But it's extremely important that we note the two qualifiers attached to these statements in verses 10 and 11. Jesus isn't talking about any instance where you might receive criticism, insult, or hatred. The lifestyle that he commends as blessed or as flourishing is that which encounters hardship because of righteousness, verse 10, and on account of Christ himself, verse 11. The only persecution that is blessed is that which stems from allegiance to Jesus and living in conformity with his standards and his will. So, for example, if you cut someone off on the freeway and then you get flipped off, that doesn't equal blessed. On the contrary, Christians may be considered fortunate when others insult, slander, and abuse us because the righteousness for which we hunger and thirst is offensive. Those who persecute us have rejected the Christ we seek to follow, and so they attack us. That, Jesus says, is blessed. Though in America we don't face the threat of being put to death or imprisoned on account of our faith, as many throughout the history of the church and even in other parts of the world today face, it would be wrong to conclude that these verses don't apply to us, that they don't have any relevance for us. One needs only to spend a few minutes scrolling through social media or watching a mainstream media outlet to find examples of Christians being ridiculed, condemned, and lambasted for holding to orthodox biblical convictions. The claims of the gospel are just as scandalous today as they were 2,000 years ago. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only Savior, Sovereign, and Lord is just as offensive now as it was in the first century. As John Stott remarks, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. The repetition of this theme in the last two verses highlights the importance of this as part of the message of Jesus' sermon. It also foreshadows the rest of the book of Matthew, which will have a lot to say about this, and even in other uh, passages in this sermon that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. For instance, in chapter 10, 
Matthew records Christ's speech as he sends his disciples out into the towns of Israel to proclaim the kingdom. Starting in verse 16, chapter 10, he says, Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them, because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me, to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But of course, this is nothing new. The rest of the New Testament is clear on this same point. James, John, Peter, and Paul are all convinced that for God's people, persecution is inevitable. Listen to what the apostle writes in 2 Timothy. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Maybe even more surprising, though, than the stated blessedness of being persecuted is what we are instructed to do in response. In verse 12, be glad and rejoice. So not only are we guaranteed to face suffering, we're then expected to remain joyful in the midst of it. Thankfully, Jesus follows this this command with two reasons why we can confidently respond in such a manner. So first, he says we can be sure that we have a great heavenly reward. We will get to dwell with our God forever in eternity, and that outweighs any of these light momentary afflictions that we might experience in the world. It's not that we merit such a reward, that we do enough by enduring persecution to gain this wage, but God in his goodness overflows with graciousness and compassion towards those who have endured this persecution. The ultimate outcome, that which will become a reality only in the future kingdom, motivates us to remain faithful in spite of persecution. And so because of the trustworthy and true promises of God, those who suffer for him now can actually rejoice and be glad. They can have a taste of true flourishing now and know that they will get it in full in the kingdom to come. Jonathan Pennington says, this is not a grin and bear it approach to simply keep, to simply keep calm and carry on in the midst of difficulties. It's an invitation to rejoice due to the realization that this state is true human flourishing now and in the age to come. So the second reason that we can rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering is because it puts us in good company. The faithful prophets of the Hebrew Bible endured persecution on account of their righteousness and faithfulness to Yahweh. Like them, we have a prophetic witness in the world, and we will be considered blessed on account of the reproach we bear for Christ. In this suffering, we not only follow in the footsteps of faithful prophets, we also follow our Lord. For our Savior does not give us these instructions from a remote place above us, removed, disconnected from our experience. No, he speaks these words as the one who most fully embodies them. The Messiah who calls his followers to joyfully endure persecution 
is the same Messiah who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And so in a paradoxical way, true human flourishing is found in the midst of, and even because of, persecution and suffering for Christ in the gospel. Thus, Peter can write, you might remember from our time in 1 Peter of the summer, in chapter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Same word. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. As we move in now to the next section, verses 13 through 16, we have an important bridge from this introduction, beginning in chapter 5, into what will become the body of the sermon in verses 17 and following. But it's actually very important that we find these few exhortations and reminders and even warnings here in verses 13 to 16 before we get into the rest of the sermon because we need them in light of what Jesus has just said. Now as Jesus instructs his followers to go forth into the world as heralds of the kingdom and of the new covenant, he in effect pushes them out of the nest to fly for the first time. They've just been told that they will suffer. Jesus' followers will face persecution, and so they need this exhortation. They need this push. Note that what Jesus tells us in verses 13 and following is not something that we need to do or need to work to become. He says, this is what you are. In light of this presently possessed identity, we're called to act and live in a certain way, and we'll see that in what follows. Jesus will use two metaphors, which I'm sure we've heard before, and even outside of the church, these uh, phrases are used because of their, uh, their import from the Bible. He says, you are the salt of the earth, in verse 13, and then in verse 14, you are the light of the world. It's important that we see that both these metaphors, salt and light, which might not seem like they have much in common, are actually going to communicate the same idea. They're linked here. They're conceptually parallel. The metaphor of being the salt of the earth is a bit interesting. Salt can be used for a bunch of different things, even in the Bible. When it mentions salt, it's not a uniform referent. It doesn't always mean or convey one thing can be talking about, for instance, preservation or seasoning. It could be about being distinctive or purifying and cleansing. And so it's important to see this in connection with this next metaphor of light, which really helps us out because light is a common image in the Bible. It's especially prevalent in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It's connected with revelation or instruction or righteousness and the presence of God. Especially, though, we need to be aware of how this theme is used in Isaiah, which is a very important book for Matthew and for Jesus in Matthew. He makes reference to Isaiah all the time. 
the theme of light in Isaiah is connected with the covenant and with the Messiah. It's connected with the one who is to come. And for instance, as we see in Isaiah 42, he says about this Messiah, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And again, in in Isaiah 49, speaking of this messianic servant who's to come, I will make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so light is about the revelation of God coming and salvation appearing for those who are in darkness as they're illuminated and filled with life. The point then of these two images, of being salt and light, are the same. Jesus' disciples are now heralds of this new and lasting covenant that is brought into effect by Jesus. Jesus is the one who inaugurates the kingdom as he proclaims it on earth, and he brings into being the new covenant which was promised all throughout the Old Testament. And so the salt and light are related to the permanence of this covenant, the importance of this covenant, and the spread of this covenant as those who are these things, salt and light, go throughout the earth and make much of Christ and his gospel. They spread his glory. They herald the new covenant. In connection with light, Jesus himself in the book of John says, I am the light of the world. Through being identified with our Savior, as disciples of Jesus, we also are this light to the world. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 5, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul says it again in in Philippians 2. The main idea is that we are instruments of spreading God's kingdom and covenant throughout the world, especially to the Gentiles, to those who were previously not included in the people of God. Now all are invited as those who are in Christ proclaim and herald the gospel. The purpose of being salt and light is made even more clear in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the purpose of being salt and light. The positive sides of each of these images, the salting of the earth, the lighting the world, the spreading of this light is related again to the new covenant and heralding this in the world so that God might be glorified. Similar again to something that Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, where he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These verses are encouraging for us because we've been told that some, because of our righteousness, because of Jesus, will persecute us, will oppose us, will have Nothing to do with us. They want us to quench this light. And yet, 
we hear from Jesus here that this light and salt, this part of our identity, will have an impact in the world, not just causing people to persecute us, but some, as they are intrigued by the saltiness of God's people, the light and brightness of His people, they might come to glorify God. It's an encouragement. We're told that there will be people who come to give glory to the Father in heaven after seeing the way in which his people live. And so, after mentioning the positive uses of saltiness and brightness, Jesus also throws in a way in which this impact is negated, a negative side where in verse 13, the salt loses its saltiness. And in verse 15, the lamp is covered by a basket or a bowl. What this shows us is that our witness, our testimony to the world is something that can be quenched. It can be, can be hidden. If we are not salty, if we are not bright, the kingdom will not advance. The gospel will not spread. Christ's glory will not be magnified. And if you think about these things, if you think about salt losing its taste, it's an a interesting way to put it, and, and that word for losing its taste it, uh, is used more commonly about something being foolish and becoming foolish. Salt becoming foolish um, is a result of the people who are the salt foolishly failing to carry out their mission as God's people. The light, which is supposed to bring illumination to the house or to the whole world, when it's covered, everything returns to darkness. And so, in this way, God's people can quench what he has made them to do and be. We should note, though, that with these images of being salt and being light, the you is plural. So, Jesus here is not just saying that each and every one of us is a little individual candle or that we're all a little grain of salt. No, he's saying that together we are light. We are a giant lamp. We are salt. And so, it's important that we understand to follow Jesus and adopt these new values of the kingdom of heaven. We need to do this together in community, and we stand out as a distinct community, as an alternative society. And that is what Jesus has in mind. It's the collective light of a whole community which draws the attention of the watching world. It's a city on a hill, not just one individual. This is why our Christian witness matters, both individually and corporately. It's vital because of the significance then of the great commission Jesus gives at the end of his ministry on earth when he tells his disciples to go out into the nations to teach, to baptize, and make disciples from all nations. What's fascinating, though, is that a few chapters earlier in Matthew 24, when he talks about living in the end times, Jesus says that 
you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And then he tells them to go into all nations and make disciples. It's that tension we saw of those who see our righteousness and hate it and those who see it and come to glorify God for it. We are called as God's people to be his covenant witnesses in the world. And yet, as I mentioned in the introduction, there are so many times in which God's people fail to do this. They fail to be salt. They fail to be light. And so what does this look like? Well, maybe we should start with what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like conforming to our culture in every which way. It doesn't look like syncretism in which we lose all our distinctives, we lose our saltiness, we hide our light. It doesn't look like valuing everything our world tells us to, tells us to value. It doesn't look like having our thoughts on our hearts and our imaginations and our values shaped by this world. Being salt and light is not just about being a nice person. People won't persecute you for being nice. Being salt and light is about being witnesses to the gospel in the world. It's about conveying the glory and the goodness and the hope of the kingdom that has started and been inaugurated in Jesus and which will one day come in full being salt and light is something that we have an opportunity to either make the most of or, or hide. But since we are these things, since we don't have to work to become salt or work to become light, we actually have to go out of our way to quench these effects. If we are light, then if we don't want to show it to people, we have to put a basket over it. If we are salty already, if we don't want to salt the earth, we have to foolishly lose our flavor. And while it's actually something we have to go out of our way to do, it's something that is so easy to do, especially when the world is telling us to avoid this and to try and fit in. It's understandable, in fact, why one might want to be less bright and less salty if you're going to face persecution. If you're going to be killed or imprisoned or hated by people because of your faith in Christ, it would make sense why you would want to do what you can to avoid that. But there are so many times, and I am just as guilty of this, where I want to avoid this because it might get a little awkward with the person I know. It might be a little uncomfortable. I might not know what to say. That is absurd when we are these witnesses to the covenant to, for a little bit of awkwardness, say, no, I'm going to quench this light. And so, friends, we need to ask ourselves, what ways are we doing this individually? What ways are we putting a basket over our light? What ways are we failing to be the agents of, uh, of 
change in the world because of the gospel. Where we are doing this, we need to repent. The same thing goes for as a church. Where as a people, as a city on the hill, are we failing to extend our light? In what ways are we failing to be the witnesses to the kingdom that we are in Christ? We need to turn from those things. In fact, if verses 10 through 12 aren't a part of our lives, then it's probably a good, uh, it's probably a, a good indication that we're quenching our saltiness and our light. If these beatitudes at the end are not true of us, then we should probably reevaluate how we are being witnesses to Christ in the world. We don't go full into persecution just wanting to do whatever we can to rile people up and rile people up and get them to hate us, and yet we must not shrink away from this since Jesus said it will come. In fact, he has very harsh words later in the Sermon on the Mount and later in the book of Matthew about those who are ashamed of him. In Matthew 10, he says, Everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. This is serious, serious stuff. And we only experience this true flourishing that includes all the other Beatitudes and those last ones about being persecuted. We experience those only when we live out our identity as salt and light, even especially when we are persecuted. Though for many of us, the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are familiar. We've heard them before. It doesn't mean they're easy to understand. Much more to live out. Almost every single one of the values that Jesus extols in the Beatitudes seems to be utterly undesirable, at least from a human perspective. What Christ proclaims as being a state of blessing or flourishing or fortune consists almost wholly of that which humanity naturally seeks to avoid especially suffering and persecution. The portrait that Jesus paints of his flourishing kingdom, at first glance, it seems to be profoundly non-flourishing. It looks like Jesus painted this picture upside down. He's got an upside-down kingdom. But as it turns out, it is not Christ, but us who are disoriented. From the day we're born, we've been trained by the world to view things, not in accordance with God's revelation and what he tells us is true, but from an altogether different perspective. So naturally, it's, it's in our nature that when true human flourishing, as Jesus portrays it, entails suffering, it seems unattractive to us. Yet in his presentation of kingdom norms and realities, Jesus extends an invitation for his hearers to reorient their thinking and their sensibilities about what it means to thrive and live fully. In fact, the entire Bible seeks to influence us 
in this way as it calls us not to be conformed to this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2. Thankfully, the scriptures provide us with many examples of saints who embraced this heavenly perspective on the kingdom of God. The Old and New Testaments are full of examples of individuals who embraced and embodied Jesus' vision of kingdom-oriented living and flourishing. We find many people who show us how we too can live out such a high and un, uh, unattractive to the natural human, such a countercultural calling. So listen to these few examples, if you will. I love this from Acts 5. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The apostles had just been flogged. Their backs are still raw from their lashings, and yet they walk out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. It's amazing. That is flourishing. Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be, greater, to be of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. I, I wish I could say so much more about that text and what it says about Moses and the Old Testament and what they're looking forward to, but, but notice that it says he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be of greater wealth than anything on earth. His treasure was not in this world, it was in heaven. He was looking ahead to the reward. Jesus says, your reward will be great in heaven. Moses had this perspective. And even the author of Hebrews commends those he's writing to about their own experience and how they embraced this perspective. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and a, an abiding one. They knew their reward was in heaven, and so they didn't care what happened on this earth. These people had a kingdom perspective. And so if we are to embrace this vision that seems so upside down, but we need our eyes of faith. If we are to, like Jesus, embrace persecution with joy and gratitude as we await our heavenly reward, we will need the Father to work in us by his Spirit if we are to faithfully live out our identity as salt and light, 
witnesses to the new covenant kingdom, we must continually live in the abundance of Christ's grace and mercy. We must follow in the ways of our Lord and our Master, for it is only then when we experience true flourishing. It's only then that we comprehend what it means to be truly human. Jesus' disciples are invited into a life of true flourishing. They're as witnesses to the new covenant, to his kingdom, and they will certainly face persecution, and yet they are secure because they have a reward that will not perish and that it is in heaven with their Lord and with their God. Would you please pray with me? Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have failed to live out the vision which you reveal in your word for your people, for your disciples. Would you make us more and more into the image of Christ who so perfectly embodied the Beatitudes? Forgive us for the ways in which we neglect our calling as light, as salt. Father, we ask that you would make us brighter, that you would make us saltier, that you would give us a life-encompassing vision and passion for the lost, for the world which is in darkness, which needs seasoning by salt, and would you use us, Father, for your glory so that as people see us, they might acknowledge you They might glorify you, and they might come to know what true flourishing is as well. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.